How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the Chop Fit. Over the course of the past year, the Chop Fit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SPEARCHOP10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SPEARCHOP10 for $10 off your Chop Fit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk, and today we're welcoming the incredible Lou Velozzi. Lou is a retired ATF special agent of over 20 years whose work uh, using the storefront sting operation tactic uh, helped take off over 1,000 guns off the street and led to over 300 convictions um, of individuals who were doing some very bad things, whether it's drugs, uh, guns, everything from uh, the mafia to organized crime, to biker gangs, to murder for hire plots. Lou uh, also has a new book coming out this December. So we are going to be talking about that today. And, uh, but overall, thank you, Lou, for jumping on here. Hey, brother. It's great to be here, man. I appreciate it. And so I know you and I just kind of talked uh, before we would start recording here, but so two of my biggest guests on the show where the most interaction for people um, have been Jay Dobbins uh, and Bob Hamer. Um, both have books out, both spent time undercover from different agencies, whether it's ATF to FBI. And to have someone like you on his show uh, really validates what the men and women in the undercover world um, do uh, to help kind of bring down these bad guys. Yeah, man. Um, you know, uh, Jay, who we call Bird, kind of gave me my first break uh, on the national scene working undercover, doing a, he was doing a phenomenal case. Uh, out in Arizona on a, it was a home invasion crew that was uh, also dealing with pipe bombs and all sorts of stuff. And he brought out uh, three guys, one from Chicago, one from LA and myself to kind of wrap it up. Uh, And it it was a really cool caper. Uh, The bad guys actually picked us up from the airport as we flew in. So we were in roll as we got off the plane and there was all sorts of cool shit involved. uh, strippers, helicopters. Um, uh, <laughs> there was, yeah, pipe bombs, uh, grenade launchers. It was a really cool caper. You know, Bird had already done all the groundwork and the hard work, and we kind of came in just for a few weeks to to help them wrap it up, and it, it was really cool. Now, before we kind of dig into the meat potatoes of your life with the ATF, the undercover work, how did you kind of settle into this field where it's one thing to say you want to be a cop or uh, firefighter, first responder, whatever you want to be that type of mindset. But for you to kind of throw yourself out there, how did you kind of leaving the marshals be like, you know what, the undercover life is kind of what I want to do? Yeah, you know, I, I uh, hobbled through college, man, and, and got out with not knowing what I wanted to do with a economics and business degree and uh, just kind of lost in life, you know, working at a bank, making nine bucks an hour. And uh, I just had a chance meeting with a guy, with a buddy's brother, a buddy I had played ball with in college. And uh, he was in the Bronx and I met his brother. Uh, Just again, just a chance meeting. I went over there to visit him. And uh, this guy, he got out of this Corvette and he had the long hair and this was still the Miami Vice days. And, and, uh, you know, I could see the Beretta stuffed in his waistband and he was a DEA agent. And he had been working undercover. He had been in Panama. And I talked to him for about a half hour and it just, 
it, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to work undercover. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that, that's when it, when it hit me, I'd never even really considered law enforcement before that. Uh, but as you know, you don't just sign up and start working undercover. Um, you have to pay your dues. Right. So, you know, I, I went through the whole thing, test taking, and I uh, went through two different agencies, but I learned how to be a cop. And uh, it took me about seven years uh, before I got the opportunity to work undercover. And, uh, you know, I got over with ATF <clears throat> and, you know, ATF, ATF, they were the cowboys, man. They were the guys doing it. Um, you know, DEA had kind of gotten away from it. Um, you know, FBI, they do some white collar stuff, but, um, you know, ATF was, they were down and dirty, man. They, you know, they, those were the guys who were really getting in the mix working undercover. And when I got on with ATF, I was so lucky that my first partner was an undercover guy. Uh, he was a crazy guy. Uh, he still is crazy. I mean, he has mental problems and, uh, but he was a hell of an undercover and we hit the ground running my first week. I was doing deals, buying guns. It's so in the midst of the training for this, how it, obviously you train you all the scenarios, whether it's, Hey, you have to do this arms deal. You have to do this. You have to accomplish these goals to pass, to get the trade to become undercover. But the minute you actually see a real gun or real drugs or a real bad person, how did, how long did it take you to kind of realize that this is no longer trade, but this is my life is on the line. If something goes wrong here, I read this wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm losing my life here. You know, I, I always had that realization from my first deal, you know, to, you know, thousands of deals later, my last deal, I always had that. It was always, you know, I never got comfortable or complacent, but I wanted to do it so bad. I, you know, I found what I wanted to do in life and I was good at it. So there was never nervousness or anxiety or any of that with me. I, I was doing what I wanted to do. So I, the only times I ever got nervous, to be honest with you, was in the training. When I was doing the, the undercover scenarios at the ATF undercover school and advanced undercover school, and I knew my peers were watching me uh, you know, on the, on the camera, I got nervous. In real life, I never got nervous. I was doing what I wanted to do and what I loved. The character you created of uh, Sal Nunziato, and I, I want to focus on this because it's this character has always been so prevalent in your life, mm -hmm. uh, especially with all the storefront stuff. But what goes into creating a character like this? Is what, are there stuff part of this guy's life you had to create that didn't make it to the final uh, look at this guy like where how do you trial and error create a character that's believable especially in a world where bad guys know who's really bad yeah you know it's it's a uh kind of a cool uh thing in that the government does when, when we're setting up our backstopping atf did what you know the things that that i can't do that i couldn't do as far as setting up credit history um you know your driver's licenses your, your passports, your, you know, all, all of that kind of documentation. Um, but a lot of the, the small things, the real world things you do yourself, you set up yourself. That's what we all did. Um, from just things like every office I went into, I would fill out magazine subscriptions for Sal Nunziata. Right. And, oh, right. you know, so that, especially as time went on, uh, you know, I started out in 91 when everyone wasn't on the internet. Right. It was kind of just starting, uh, you know, now you can go on the Internet and find out almost everything about someone. You know, when I first got on, there were some cases where, you know, they hired private investigators to kind of check 
you know, check out my background. These days, you don't have to hire a private investigator. You can get on the computer at home and, and figure out right. if something's for real. So, so we really had to do a lot more as time went on. But, but we, you know, all the hard parts, the, the official parts of creating your undercover identity was done by the government. And then you kind of took it from there because it was your ass on the line, right? Right. You made it real so that, you know, if someone, and they did, you know, dove into my background. Yes, I have a gym membership. I go to this, Sal Nunziato goes to this gym to train, um, whatever. I have a real estate license. I have, you know, whatever fit my background, you know, for that case, I made sure I had that. Uh, and that Sal was real. He had a, a PO box. He had all sorts of stuff. So if you looked into this guy, he was a real guy. He was in the club. He was in the uh, Italian American Association Club, all sorts of stuff that would come up. And, and that we did ourselves to kind of, like you said, create the character and create the person. How much of Lou is Sal and how much is Sal is Lou? Like, is there ever, is there ever been a blurred line reality where you woke up one day and kind of like, I don't know who's who, like, you don't know if Lou's playing Sal or vice versa. Yeah. And, and that kind of, uh, that kind of led to the, to my early retirement and, uh, you know, the end of my career because Sal started taking over, um, you know, I, I worked almost two decades nonstop undercover. And, uh, you know, I wasn't all about taking a break or taking time off because I, I loved right. it. I was, I was kind of obsessed with it. So, yeah, you, you're undercover. Uh, you, you kind of morph into each other, uh, you know, depend, especially depending on what you're undercover. Mine was a hustler, man. You know, Sal was a hustler, man. He was buying guns for, for low prices. He was bringing them up north and selling them for high prices. That was his hustle. And whatever else he could make money on, you know, dope, stolen cars, identity packets, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, lines, the lines can become blurred when, when you're never really home. Because even when you come home to your wife and kids, uh, that undercover phone never stops ringing, right? Your work phone never stops ringing. Right. And I'm on the phone with bad guys in the middle of the night, setting up a machine gun deal. Uh, I'm on the phone with another agent out in Los Angeles because I got to run out there and help them, you know, start up a case. And what pays the price is your family life. And your family I, a, a lot of times people that, uh, whether they're counselors or therapists, are always like, well, you can't bring work home. I thought, well, I understand the idea of it. Some jobs like undercover work, I don't know how you don't bring work home because you have to the minute you drop your guard, you're going to lose all the work you put into it, which includes the self-sacrifice, whether it's family, your kids, your wife. Um, so a two-part question here. When you are undercover, what steps do you have to do to stay? Like, do you have to keep trading with the ATF like as back as your back as Lou? Like, how do you kind of break down like the, the physical trading, the shooting, the, all this other stuff you might have to do uh, versus staying undercover the whole time? So when you're doing a long-term infiltration, uh, really the only requirement that ATF has, you have to qualify to carry a firearm. So quarterly, you got to qualify. So you got to find some way to break away and qualify. Uh, but other than that, you know, you're out there and, and uh, you're left alone. And, and now you mentioned before we started recording, working with Jay uh, Bird on a case, but when you are undercover, is it the duty of the lead agency, whether it's ATF to tell, hey, the FBI might have an undercover guy or the local jurisdiction might have an undercover or 
whoever it is, like, how do you know who's undercover? Is there a set kind of structure in place, like a chain of command that, hey, Lou's out here, Jay's out here, and so-and-so's over here? There's, there's, uh, yeah, you know, we have systems at ATF and databases uh, to kind of make sure that we're not stepping into someone else's open. Got you. That's going on. So, uh, yes, the answer is yes. So with, with, within our own agency and with other agencies, uh, to make sure that we don't have a blue on blue situation, we do, we do have systems set up for that. Now I've mentioned the storefront uh, sting operations, but for those that aren't aware, could you somehow kind of explain what those are and why those tactics were started and why they aren't around today? Today, yeah, a storefront is basically a fictitious business that is owned and operated by law enforcement. All right, and and they, we didn't create the concept. Uh, there was agencies, NYPD was doing them back in the '60s and '70s. But they were mostly uh, like pawn shop types of businesses, and they were set up to disrupt fencing operations for the most part. What happened, and I kind of fell into them, uh, was we fell into one with uh, in the city of Augusta, Georgia, with the Richmond County Sheriff's Department, who had they had pinched a guy who was just gotten out of prison. He was a tattoo artist, and he didn't want to go back to prison. So they had, they had some dirt on him and he flipped and they decided they were going to do a storefront as a tattoo shop, their idea, not ATFs, but okay. they didn't have the undercover resources uh, and the finances, you know, to go through with it all. So they partnered up with ATF up there. And uh, I got a call from a agent in Augusta who said, listen, we're doing a storefront up here. It's going to be a tattoo shop. Would you do the undercover? I barely knew what a storefront was, but I never said no, right? I asked, absolutely, I'll do it. Um, I had a million things going on, but I'll do it. I didn't realize how full-time it was going to be. And so the informant was the tattoo artist. I was kind of the manager uh, of the shop. And we had a couple under other undercover guys we brought in uh, to work there. You know, we also sold cigarettes and pipes and okay. the usual stuff you could buy at a tattoo shop. And let me tell you, and, and so the goal was Augusta had a huge gang problem, six or seven gangs affiliated with national gangs, just home invasions, drugs, guns everywhere, stolen cars, all sorts of that. And that, that was our goal was to kind of disrupt all that gang activity. And I, I had no idea how this thing was going to spider web. Right. I didn't know anything about a storefront, but I knew an undercover hustle is an undercover hustle. Right. And I ran my game, man. You know, I told all these guys as they started trickling in, you know, I had, you know, we had moving trucks and all that. And I said, listen, you know, I, I fill up this moving truck with people's belongings. And let's say I'm moving them from Atlanta to New York. And, you know, as soon as I buy up 100, 150 guns, I secrete the guns inside these people's stuff. So, so if Johnny Law pulls me over and wants to sniff around, hey man, I'm just a mover. I don't, I don't look through people's boxes and all yeah. that. And, and the man, the bad guys were like, right on. I mean, they loved it, you know. So I made them want to be a part of my hustle, and they started bringing stolen guns and you know, machine guns, sawed-off shotguns, sawed-off rifles, you name it. They started coming in, and 
the drugs, you know, drugs are dope is easy to buy. Anybody can buy dope. You know, the dope started coming in. Uh, we bought as much as we could afford with the dope. Stolen cars, um, all sorts of stuff. They were bringing in stuff that we didn't want because we weren't a we weren't a a pawn shop, right? We were a tattoo shop. Guys started coming in. A guy came in with uh, a box full of prosthetic limbs, right? And I was like, "What the fuck am I going to do with this?" And you know, he takes out a, a a prosthetic arm, and he goes, "Man, he goes." I said, "Who am I going to sell this to? Well, how am I going to make my?" He goes, "Man, you sell it to a motherfucker with one arm." I said, "Well, that's a good good point, but you know, this, that's not that's not what we do." And and so you know, we had guys bringing in a, a box full of stolen puppies from a, a pet store, uh, and you know, we turned all that away because that's not what it was about. We were about uh, you know addressing the gang violence problem. So we started getting all the gangs in. They were tagging the walls. We let them. We had a bowl full of sharpies. We let them tag all the walls. And, uh, you know, fistfights in there with rival gangs, the whole deal. But just to fast forward, um, you know, we actually made cases where we could show the structure of the gang, conspiracy cases. And a year later, we had purchased 430 crime guns off the streets of Augusta. Jeez. Yeah, incredible. And so based on that operation, the success of that operation, that's that was 2007 that's what kicked off the storefront thing and they started you know agents heard about it i started getting phone calls and they started popping up all over the country now there's probably you might have before if you didn't use the storefront tactic you might have been able to grab a, a handful a couple dozen guns through right. whatever how what other way could there have been done to get these guns safely off the streets without more bloodshed? Like, I don't, that's why I have a tough time understanding why Congress would be so now I understand uh, different tactics, maybe might be questionable or people's rights. I, I, I get that gist of it, but if you want to safely get these guns off the street and the worst thing you deal with is a fist fight in the storefront, wouldn't you want to go that route? Like, I don't understand the breakdown there um, where you actually were doing a lot of incredible work getting the stuff off. It, it was pure politics. Um, you know, and if you look, you know, a couple, there was one done up in Milwaukee. I didn't know the, the people, the agents who did it up there, but that, that's where all the trouble really started. Uh, a couple of reporters, these two reporters from the Milwaukee Journal got on it. And if, if you look, if you Google it and read, you know, what they came up with, and, and I think they picked five of our storefronts. And, uh, you know, you can take, first of all, there's gray area in undercover work, right? I mean, it is, right. it, there's always gray area. And you could take any undercover operation, especially an undercover operation that goes a year or more, and you could pick it apart. You could Monday morning quarterback it all day long uh, and say, oh my God, I can't believe they did this. This happened. They did. That's just the way it is, right? If you're dealing with, with, violent street gangs or outlaw bikers. I mean, there's some crazy shit that's going to happen. So you can pick anything apart. And, and they did. And if you look at what they came up with and like, oh, well, I, I believe one thing was they said they, they bought uh, drugs or something from someone who was mentally deficient, right? Okay. I don't even know what the correct term is anymore. But I'll tell you what, and I have talked to those people. You know how many times I've done deals with guys out on the street who were selling me dope or selling me guns. And, and I mean, they were street smart and they were savvy and they knew exactly what they're doing. But when they show up in court, all of a sudden, 
they've got mental problems, they're in a wheelchair, all sorts of stuff, right? So yep. you know how that goes, right? And what the defense can do for that. And, and so it was little things like that. One, one big thing they said was an agent's, one of the cover teams, an outside cover outside of the storefront, an agent's gun got stolen from his car. How irresponsible this gun was stolen from the car. You know how many times that happens? to cops, police all over the place. You know, if you yeah. park your car, I mean, it happens. So, you know, these little things they picked on, they just blew them up. Uh, and Congress just got a bad taste in their mouth for these uh, storefronts. And they were all over ATF. And in, ATF did what ATF does always. Instead of standing up and saying, listen, for some minor incidents, we're getting thousands of crime guns off the street. Do you know how many lives are being saved? Right. With one gun. How many right. lives have been saved? You can't, you don't know. And we're getting thousands and thousands off the street. So let's look over, let's let's dissect these minor incidents and keep rolling. But ATF rolled over and and you know, and, and I made my own mistakes. Right. So Which, but th there was no reason I, I think to shut down the program. And they have been shut down. So I've written this book about it because I don't feel I'm giving away any secrets because. The day of the storefront is done. We had an incredible run. We ran these from 2007 to about 2015, and that's it. But it, it was a wild ride. I mean, some crazy shit happened, and, and the results we got are just undeniable. Has there ever been a time where you as Sal or another character had to kind of, you got recognized you did deal with another guy, say he was an organized crime, and then you have another deal over here with a guy that's in a uh, uh, motorcycle club or whatever it is. Have you ever been recognized as Sal between rival gangs or different groups where you're kind of like, you have to be really careful how you told this line with, with your story? You know, I was recognized once uh, when I left my storefront, which was the rule was that we don't leave the storefront, do all the deals in the storefront. It's just not worth it. No matter how juicy it seems, don't go out there while you're doing a storefront and do a deal outside just in case that happens, right? Once, I did it once and I went to a car wash. We were working on these guys at a car wash and this guy, the main guy, I mean, they were selling all sorts of dope out of this car wash. And the main guy didn't like delivering it. He was tacking, he was tacking his, uh, his own fee on top of the dope for delivering it because he didn't want to ride dirty, right? I get it. Yeah. So he finally talked me into going over there. I went over there once and I, I was going over there where I, I don't know what it was, buy a kilo or something like that. And there was this old guy there and I look at him. I was like, man, that guy looks familiar. Like he just got a weird feeling. I saw him looking at me and uh, the other agent undercover I was with, he knew something was up. So I didn't do the deal. I kind of backed away. We got back in the car and left. And I said, man, something's not right. I said, that old dude, you see him looking at me? He goes, oh yeah, I saw him looking at me. Turns out he was, a, I, I couldn't place him <laughs> at the time. He was a court security officer. You know, the blue jackets at federal. Yep. He was an old guy. Um, and, you know, they're all former law enforcement. I can't remember who he was with. He was there scoring dope. And he dined me out to the guy. He said, oh, I see that guy at the courthouse all the time. You know, he's, a, he's an ATF agent. And, uh, I, like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Of all people to get dined out by. So 
you know, we had an informant who had, who had set me up with this guy. And, you know, Jeez. we get to lunch and, and the informant calls me. He's like, hey, man, Tony, who was the bad guy, he goes, somebody just told Tony that you're ATF. And he's freaking out. And uh, I was like, man, we were about halfway into this operation. So you never want to be the reason why you have to shut down an operation, right? Because it wasn't just me. There's a whole right. team, right? All these, you know, my other undercover team and, and everyone. And, and I don't want to be the reason why the whole thing has to shut down because someone recognized me. Uh, but we were actually able, I was able to handle that situation. Um, and, uh, and we were able to move on and we, we kind of closed that guy off and we moved on. But yeah, you know, you can get recognized, man. Uh, and, and that's just, but that's just part of the game. Right. Cause I figure you mean, you're a very physically, you stand out from a crowd, your tattoos, your look. And so how, is there any time you have to actually have to change uh, your hair, your kind of go away for a little bit? Like, how do you, when you go home, uh, this is you being Lou, that look doesn't leave your body. The physicality of that doesn't change. So how do you, how do you enjoy your fleeting seconds away from work? Just be yourself without being out there. Oh, there's Sal at the grocery store. Yeah, well, you know, you're talking about the look. So I went through every look uh, throughout <laughs> my years. I had really long hair. Uh, I had my head shaved. I had a ZZ top beard, um, you know, 10 earrings in each ear, that whole deal. And, and uh, you know, tattoos everywhere. Yeah. But it, it's not your look, right? That, that's not what makes you a good undercover. I could take, pick 100 people off the street and we could tattoo them up and grow their hair and grow their beards or give them any kind of look you want, right? Anyone can do that. But that's not what makes you a good undercover. Some of the best undercovers out there that I've worked with don't have crazy looks to them, right? It's about the game you have inside of you, your hustle. So, you know, I found out kind of early on that it wasn't about having some crazy look because the vast majority of bad guys, I like, as a matter of fact, like, the badder they were, they looked, they didn't have crazy looks to them, you know? So I kind of learned early on that it's not really about the look. It's about your game, what you bring to the table, what you say, what you don't say, how you carry yourself. Uh, so, and, you know, my wife hated all those looks, right? You know, she, <laughs> yeah. she hated a lot about me during that time. Um, you know, her, you know, she didn't, she married a guy with a college degree, an education, who was a law enforcement officer, right? She didn't marry a thug or a gangster, but that's what, who she ended up with. Um, so it, it is hard, you know, you can shed that look, you know, and come, kind of come back to normal, but it's harder to shed the character and the attitude, right? right. You're dealing with- Lowest of low. dramatic killers, right? Yeah guys who are raping and assaulting and putting guns on the street and doing terrible shit. So you have to keep your edge. It's very hard to go home and flip that light switch and all of a sudden not have that, right? If right. someone says something to you you don't like, you're gonna react the way you react on the street, not the way you should react. <laughs> uh, so it, the look was e is easy to get rid of, and but the character was not so easy. Now, when it comes to your book, is this something that has been the last couple of years, you know, 
like the the downtime when you retired, you're kind of like, I need to get this out here. Like, what was your, what are your goals with a book, and what was somebody like your fears putting this book out there? Well, I can I can answer that either. So it took me five years. Okay. I started in 2016. Um, I went through five co-authors uh, and about four or five different versions. And you know, writing is hard, man. Oh, yeah. I would. I would sit there at my computer and write one sentence and stare at it for 20 minutes and then delete it because it sounded stupid and start over again. So it, it, writing is hard. I, I finally found, I have a great literary agent, Chip McGregor. I finally found, he found me a co-author who got it. It's very hard, as you know, being law enforcement, to have someone who's not in law enforcement or never was. Parker read about you. Right, right. to understand it. Uh, but he found a guy, Brian Whitney, who got it. He just got it. And when he laid it down for me, and all he did was he just took what I wrote and made it sound, made it interesting, made it a, a page turner. Uh, because writing is hard, man. Me and you, we write police reports. Nobody wants yeah. to read a police report when they open a book. Right. You know, an investigative report. They want to read a book something that makes you want to turn the next page and, you know, and flows. And that's what he was able to put, give to the book. And you asked what I, what I want from the book, what I'm hoping. And, you know, I'm going to lay it right out there. And, and it's kind of, uh, it's, it's somewhat in the works, not, nothing in stone yet, but I think this lends itself very well to a Netflix type series where every season is a different storefront with different undercovers, different bad guys, different stories, all the drama in between undercovers and in between bad guys and, and agents and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, that, that's what I'm, I'm in. Talks. It has a, it has a very shield meets sons of anarchy meets uh, breaking bad type of real people in terrible situations. Uh, but how you guys kind of deal with it. What, and I'm excited to read the book, obviously. And I guess, it was the you kind of you kind of hinted at it, but were you trying to write the book as Lou, or write the book as Sal? Oh, uh, like, definitely as Lou. Okay. Yeah, and and I uh you know I go into my mistakes and uh it's not it's not a dirty hairy you know shoot him up right you know tough guy <laughs> right. cop rides away on his Harley it's it definitely not man it is about how I establish relationships and then fuck people over and how, you know, how, how we do that, mostly centered around, it, it, it's centered all around these storefront operations and, and the mistakes we made, how we kind of befriended the communities we were in and people who were coming in who weren't bad people or doing bad stuff, but they felt betrayed at the end that it was a government sting operation. Uh, it talks a lot about the successes and a lot about the failures and all about the crazy shit that happened inside of these places. It is fascinating as, as Sal, who another character you created, you had to create these relationships, these create these real relationships with real bad people. Yet at the end of the day, you actually are forging relationships with these people as a different character. So it must be tough once the hammer drops. Hey, man, sorry about this, sir. Because you, you have your duty to obviously to the Brotherhood, the Timbaland, to actually get the evil off the street. So for that, I mean, it has to be really interesting on your end just to kind of deal with a guy that you've been buying guns for two years and he all of a sudden it's over with for him. 
Yeah, you know, the, the book is kind of centered around one guy um, who we made a bad mistake. On my, my favorite storefront called Statesboro Blues. Uh, we hired early on, it kind of had a slow start. We hired a future defendant to work the store with us. Um, his girlfriend came to us and said, hey man, can you give PD a job? It's a condition of his parole that he has to be employed. Can you hire him here now? He was a multi-convicted felon and we had already bought a lot of dope from him. So he was fucked. And we were like, man. And you know, we usually cut people off at that point because there's no sense piling on and wasting taxpayer money. So we were like, man, that, that is gonna be difficult because it's an undercover operation. You know, right across the wall is our cover team running uh, criminal histories and license plates and shit right there. And there was a common back room. And we're like, you know, the logistics are gonna be tough, but instant credibility with him sitting behind the cash register, right? Most of the yep. bad guys know who he is. He's got a good reputation. Well, not a, he's got a reputation on the street and it lends us instant credibility. And sure as shit, it did. And he, but here was what we didn't foresee. He was there for about eight months, every day working with us. And, you know, there's a lot of downtime in the stuff. We're playing pool, shooting the shit. Yeah. And we liked the guy. He was a great guy. Um, I'm saying not about a multi-convicted felon, but he was a good guy. He was a product of his environment. But he ended up, he ended up helping us negotiate deals, getting down prices of guns and dope, identifying people, you know, because sometimes just Pookie, that's the only name we had. And, you know, he wasn't, he was getting dropped off by someone who the plate didn't come back to anybody, whatever. He'd be like, oh, that's so-and-so, man. Don't worry about him. What? And we we're like, yes. Right. So he was so valuable to the operation. And then toward the end of the operation, and you know, you shoot the shit with him. There's downtime. We're playing pool. We're hanging out. And uh, you know, we're all looking at each other toward the end, going, wow, he's he's gonna find out who we are, and he's going to prison for a long time. And you know, we started feeling that betrayal like I had never felt before. You know, it didn't bother me before because. They were bad guys, right? And that's what you do. Right. You befriend them and you betray them. But Petey was a good guy. And uh, it, you know, it, it was, it kind of changed the game for me somewhat. Uh, made me see things a little bit differently. And, you know, he told us at one point that, you know, we were, he said, man, you guys are, are he told me specifically, you know, you're the first white guy I've ever trusted, man. And I was like, oh. fuck. You know, that, that my heart dropped down to here. I'm like, man, I, Bad choice, brother, you know, uh, the first guy to trust. And, uh, you know, it was tough. Um, and, you know, he was taken down before everyone else. And uh, there was a lot of things we didn't think about. You know, when they put him in the lockup, we didn't think, well, all these bad guys, these 100 other bad guys who saw him in the store every day are going to think he's a snitch. We didn't think about that either, right? right. Uh, when they find out what the real deal was. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of problems. He attempted suicide in the lockup, um, and he is still locked up to this day. And uh, wow. that created some heartburn, and it kind of, kind of changed the game and, and opened my eyes and made me see things a little bit differently for the rest of my career. Right. Do you have any plans, whether it's just a letter or something, to kind of talk to him, or is that outside the realm of? I mean, obviously now you're retired, so it'd probably be a little easier. But like, the stuff like that. I mean, clearly you talking about that. It, it, 
it does weigh on you. And there is some baggage there because you were part of why he's in there, or obviously he made the choices he did, but how do you kind of deal with that on a daily basis? Just reflect. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because, you know, when you look and I'm, I'm an advocate for uh, criminal justice reform. Yes. Um, Again, you know, he's, he's been in there. This operation was in 2008 and, you know, it's, 2021 and he's he's still in federal prison you know is that what really does he still need to be in prison for selling us drugs um we're not talking about pablo escobar um street level guy and uh i don't know if that is really keeping the community safe for him being in prison today and uh and i do think i i do think we need reform um, I think that we need to deal with guns and violent crime harsher and maybe not street level drug dealing, you know, as, as harsh. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, I think about it all the time and so do my undercover guys, you know, who were with me and befriended him. You know, we still talk about it. Is there a set time for you to detox after a big takedown or once you leave one storefront to the other, what's the time lapse or do you, for you or for your old Sandy, you have to stay in character. How do you kind of, break down the between the so there's nothing structured by the agency and i should have looking back but i was already starting my next one while we were planning the takedown from the one i was doing uh big mistake on my part but i, I did not take time off in between i couldn't wait to jump into the next one it's and, interesting know, that, yeah, that you were that you were no, you're taking the guns and the drugs, the dope, and all the stuff off the street, which, which is okay. So you're taking the drugs off, but your actual rush, your drugs, you're taking right now is actually removing the stuff. So I can kind of see why you want to keep getting this hit of taking the guns off the street, taking the dope off the street, or starting another storefront. So it's almost like this weird mindset where your 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 drug is helping remove drugs off the street. Without question, uh, you know, it became, I don't know if the word addiction is, is the right word to use, but, you know, I, I, I couldn't stop doing it. I, I just loved it. And uh, I think when something takes, when you lose your priorities, then it, it is an addiction, right? Because I should have been spending more time, family and friends and all that. And all I wanted to do was be undercover and buy guns. If it now, would you say that I am curious? Like, if there, if it wasn't you doing it, there would be some another man or woman just undercover doing the job you were doing or something similar. Do you feel that would you ever go back and change stuff over, or are you okay being uh Lou and Sal that did all this incredible undercover work? I, I don't regret anything. I uh, well, I regret. The time I didn't spend with my family. Right. I do regret that. But, you know, I, I, I did what I did and I don't have a time machine. So, so right. that's, that's what I did. And as far as my mindset, right or wrong, was that I knew how to do the things I was doing. I did them better than anyone else. That, that was my mindset. Like, I, I was a little bit of a control freak about these operations and I, I knew what I was doing and I was getting the results. And so 
I, I didn't feel that there was another undercover who could fill my shoes, right, right. or wrong. That's how I felt. And, uh, you know, you kind of realize, I think, when you retire, step away that, man, <laughs> you know, the agency goes on. Uh, they, someone else plugs in and it keeps going and you were not nearly as important as you thought you were, you know? Now, as a retired agent, what, what is your rush now? Like, obviously you had the work on the book, but what other stuff, hobbies do you have now that you could, you never really did while you're undercover? You know, a hobbies question is a, is a good one because I, I always feel like I don't really have any, but uh, what I do now is uh, what I'm doing now. Uh, I work for two different companies. Uh, one of them I can say, one is Hard Knock Schoolhouse, which is run by a great former undercover ATF agent who, and we train other agencies and departments in undercover work. It is phenomenal training. Um, I also, I work for another country, uh, another company where I go overseas and do some training uh, for law enforcement in other countries. Um, and I'm also, you know, my time at home is spent now with uh, the final touches on the book, working with the publisher, getting the book out. And uh, we're filming a documentary short right now about one of the awesome. undercover, about one of the storefronts and talking to Hollywood folks about possibilities. Hell yeah. Well, I know Jay jumped over with Dead of Thieves and some stuff. Yes. So hopefully you can get in there and show your expertise with some, because it's always interesting watching I'm trying to think, uh, the movie The Recruit, obviously it was FBI, Al Pacino, uh, but it made it sexy, it made it cool, but it'd be kind of cool to see like a real life TV show or movie that had actually had someone like you just kind of lead the way in terms of this is how it should really be presented as opposed to Michael Bay explosions, which while they serve a purpose, let's show me the real nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah, you know, when you see the movies, uh, undercover work is... There's supermodels and Ferraris. And Power boats. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I started working undercover and it was hoopties and projects and trailer parks and crack horse. You know, that was that was the reality. Um, but, yeah, I, I would I'm hoping to bring out the reality, which is to me is more interesting. Yes. hundred percent. Hollywood show. And uh, so we'll see what happens. No one's written me a check yet, brother. But it's coming. Uh, so before I let you go, uh, this has been amazing, but where can people find you? Website? I know you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook, but if people want to reach out or they want to get the book this December, how can they do that and all that stuff? So my publisher is McFarland and it's about to, they're about to uh, come out. We just finished the cover um, and I'm about to get a website. It's not up and running, but it'll just be my name, Lou Velozzi. Uh I am available for speaking engagements and all that, you know, and you can through Instagram and Facebook, uh, you know, trying to follow in birds footsteps a little bit there. Yeah. You know, our stories are kind of parallel, but very different uh, in that both of our careers didn't end the way we wanted them to, you know, at all. Uh, and we did very similar things during our career, but kind of in, in different directions. Um, you know, I did in my first half of my career, I did the biker thing and I did you know, murder for hires and, and all those, those kind of undercover things. But the whole second half of my career, I, I discovered these storefront operations and I, I went that route with it. So uh, very similar, but very different in, in other ways. And uh, 
you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd love to have some of the success that Jay had, man. And, and what if, I don't know if you've ever seen his presentation. Yes. Incredible presentation. He's just such a great speaker, such a and I, individual. And I think what's like, that's what like Jay or yourself uh, is the fact that you're true to yourself and you're honest with your, your mistakes and your accomplishments too. And I think that's what sets you apart from people. I think that's why people resonate with someone like Jay or will resonate with someone like you as you get out there, because people realize that this is a guy that, is very far from perfect yet he did a job that a lot of people uh couldn't do but we needed someone like you to do it yeah it's it's you're absolutely right brother it's not a certainly my story is not a tough guy a lone wolf you know right typical top story man i i barely crawled to the finish line of my career man um it did you know didn't end well and uh i you know i think there's a lot of redemption in my story and uh a lot of lessons learned and it even carries over even out of law enforcement into, into any profession almost, you know, becoming right. obsessed, losing priorities uh, and, and crashing. I mean, there was the highs. I, I was at the peak, uh, you know, of, of my profession, my career. And I ended up at the bottom, um, you know, and, and people like to like to see if you can crawl out or not when you, when you, yeah. you know, no, I think you are going to crawl out. I can't wait for the book. And uh, again, this has been awesome. And I appreciate your uh, dedication to uh, law enforcement and helping others. And uh, this was real. This was awesome, Lou. Thank you, brother. It was an honor and, and a pleasure to, to be on the show. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you liked what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. <laughs>